This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This is a science podcast for April 29th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up, Adrian Cho is a staff writer for science, and we're going to talk about the hunt for dark matter and the new role quantum sensors are playing in this hunt. And of course, what makes a sensor a quantum sensor? After that, we hear from researcher Katie Hampson about tracking rabies in a population of 50,000 dogs over 14 years. This massive study gives us new insight into how to stop a virus that circulates at super low levels, but then just keeps popping up despite vaccine campaigns. Finally, we kick off our book series for the year 2022, this time on the science of food, including nutrition, agriculture, land use, so many things. This month, host and science journalist Angela Saini talks with researcher Lenore Newman about the books we'll be covering and why. Adrian Cho is a staff writer for science, and he's going to give us a tour of dark matter particle candidates and the latest traps that dark matter hunters are setting for them. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. So let's start with dark matter first. What is it, and why do physicists think it must exist? Dark matter is some form of invisible matter that provides gravity that is known to be out there in the universe, and the best estimate is about 85% of all matter is, in fact, dark matter. So why would you think there has to be dark matter? If you, for example, look at a spiral galaxy in the sky, Astrophysicists can estimate from the brightness of the stars in the galaxy how much mass those stars have, and they can tell from the light of the galaxy how quickly the stars are whirling around it. And it turns out that the stars are moving much faster than they should be able to if they were just holding to one another through their own gravity. So they should fly apart. The implication is each galaxy resides in a giant cloud of dark matter that provides the extra gravity needed to keep the stars in the galaxy and rein them in so they don't go flying out. There's actually a lot of other evidence for dark matter analysis of things like the cosmic microwave background and the distribution of the galaxies on the largest scales in the universe. There's a really solid model that suggests that 
the entire universe, the galaxies are sort of built into this gigantic framework of strands and clumps of dark matter. But as you say, most of this evidence for dark matter is based on observations of outer space, galaxies spinning at unexpected speeds, dark matter, pulling things around kind of at cosmic scales. But getting up close and personal with dark matter is just not happening. What kinds of things are researchers hoping to learn about dark matter through the techniques that we're going to talk about today? Like, what are the big questions? The single biggest question is, what is this stuff? If you take the model seriously, and most people do, it means that the Earth is sitting in this big cloud of dark matter, and dark matter is floating all around us, and it's floating through us, and it doesn't leave any impact on us at all. And so the question is, okay, well, what could this stuff possibly be that just hangs around and provides gravity? And physicists really hope that there's more to it than that, that in some very feeble way, it might also interact with ordinary matter. And that the reason we haven't detected it yet is that that interaction is just very, very weak. So particle physicists in particular assume that dark matter must consist of some sort of new subatomic particle. And if you just have a sensitive enough detector that's just sitting there, it's going to, at some point, detect the dark matter that's just floating around and presumably floating through it. Yeah. So there's these passive detectors deep in the earth that are just hoping for something to interact with it over a very long period of time, but those have not really yielded any signals. What exactly would penetrate the earth and interact with these deep passive sensors? Since the 1980s, the leading candidate has been a thing called WIMPs. WIMP stands for Weakly Interacting Massive Particle. When they say weakly interacting, it means that these would be particles that interact through gravity, but also through the weak nuclear force and only through the weak nuclear force. And they would be heavy. They would weigh about 100 times as much as a proton. They'd be generated in the early universe. And just enough of them should linger to provide the dark matter. So they've made bigger and bigger detectors as sort of the state of the art now are these pair of rival dark matter detectors, which are these gigantic tanks of liquid xenon that you know sit deep underground and they're looking for light signals that are, would be produced if a wimp came along and crashed into a xenon nucleus and knocked it out. And these things have masses, uh, like seven tons of liquid xenon. So they're big, big experiments these days. And they've been sitting there for a while and no wimps. No wimps so far, but it's a matter of greater and greater sensitivity. The other leading candidate is a thing called axions, which are totally different. These things are super duper light. They would weigh about a quadrillionth as much as a proton. And they would be all over the place. The axion was actually invented to solve a particular technical problem with the theory of the strong nuclear force, which binds the nucleus. But they should also proliferate in the early universe and they should hang around and you would detect those in a very different way. They're just far too light to do anything to a, a nucleus. But there is this prediction that they should be able to actually turn into radio wave photons in a strong magnetic field. So there are a number of experiments that are searching for axions, essentially by taking a, a resonating tank, a, a resonating cavity, sticking it in a magnetic field and looking for a radio signal to come out of that. There are a number of experiments trying this as of yet. 
no axions, but the mass range is considerably larger. So those are our main candidates. Now let's move over to this idea of a quantum sensor. That's kind of the focus of your piece here. What makes something a quantum sensor? Yeah, this is the big question. What is a quantum sensor? And it's actually why I wrote the piece, because this term has cropped up and it's a kind of high profile, hot topic. The answer there is really, it depends on who you ask, because different physicists have very different ideas of what a quantum sensor is. I like this one that says it detects a quanta of something. For the average person, there are three general trends here. One is, look, the world is quantum mechanical matter and energy come in tiny little packets, which are generally known as quanta. So a quantum detector is something that detects individual quanta. Perfect example would be a Geiger counter. It sits there and it pings every time it gets struck with a radioactive particle from radioactive decay. So that's a very clean definition. But as the Geiger counter example makes pretty clear, at some level, that type of quantum sensor has been around for a long time. The sort of second big trend is one that takes advantage of these uncertainty trade-offs that you can get in quantum theory, where you can basically rob Peter to pay Paul. You can measure one thing more certainly at the expense of measuring something with much, much less uncertainty. That aspect of quantum mechanics is sort of encapsulated in the famous Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And so that's a sort of second notion of what a quantum sensor is. There, it's taking advantage of what we consider a quantum phenomenon, which is like this trade-off between these two values in terms of uncertainty and saying, see, it's a quantum sensor. It's using quantum theory. Right. Well, I mean, yes, right. I mean, the other one is using quantum theory, too, at some level, but it's really this trade-off of uncertainty. And then the third theme, sort of roughly speaking out there, is just people who are using things that are being developed for stuff like quantum computing to do sensing and to try to build a detector or to improve a dark matter detector. So that's kind of what this is all about. What's interesting about this is that these sort of detectors, they open up the way to having greater sensitivity and also to exploring new ideas of what dark matter might be since the prime suspects haven't shown up yet. Physicists are casting their net wider and quantum sensors are part of this. And in fact, if done well, may make some of these searches possible that wouldn't be possible if you weren't taking advantage of this sort of thing. How would squeezing down on uncertainty be applied to a quantum sensor? So what, what can you do with that principle to make something a sensor? This sort of technique can be used to, for example, improve axion searches. Remember, axions, we have this idea that, you know, in a strong magnetic field, you can turn axions into radio waves and you can basically intensify the radio waves in this resonant cavity and you can read it out. Well, it turns out that axions would be so, so incredibly numerous that axions would actually act more like a wave than they would like a hail of individual particles, just like the light from the sun acts like a wave and not like you don't get staccato light coming at you from the sun. You see waves of light. What an axion detector does is it's trying to turn, if it's there, this wave, this macroscopic wave of invisible axions into a detectable radio wave of a specific frequency. 
if that radio wave were generated in one of these cavities, it's going to have quantum uncertainty, both in the size of the wave, how strong the signal is, but also in what's known as the phase, which is the exact synchronization of how the wave's warbling up and down relative to, you know, whatever atomic clock you would choose. An example of what you can do with sort of quantum detecting and these sort of trade-off of uncertainty is there are ways that you can, for instance, increase your precision in measuring the amplitude of the wave, which is all you really care about. Is there a radio wave there or not at the expense of the phase? And so there was a very clean experiment done in the last couple of years where a group took one of these little resonant cavities and to read it out, they used a qubit. And they were able to do this in a way that would tell them, okay, how many radio photons are in this little cavity? But it wouldn't tell them anything about the phase of the wave, right? And so they were able to get this very sort of clean measurement of the amplitude. Turned out they didn't find anything. I was going to say, yeah. They were only doing this at one frequency and you need to scan a whole range of frequency and there's no guarantee that these particles are even there. But they were able to do this because they had this way of trading off uncertainty in the phase for greater certainty in the amplitude, right? And there's another experiment called uh, dark matter radio, which is a really, really cool idea. And a good name, a really good name. Yes, they're trying to look for much lighter axions, so much lower frequency radio waves. So they actually built something that looks a lot more like a radio than it does like a resonant cavity. Uh, so it makes it more tunable. But they're doing something similar where essentially they're trading off this sort of quantum uncertainty to improve their sensitivity. And that will let them go much faster in scanning this orders of magnitude and frequency range that they want to do, which would take them thousands of years if they don't take advantage of these kind of quantum trade-offs. Sounds like there's a lot to like about this expansion of the dark matter hunt, and there's money in the game as well. Does this explosion of options give you hope? Oh, gosh. <laughs> All I do is write about what people are actually doing. I don't, I don't have to predict whether or not the experiment's going to work, right? <laughs> That's so true. You know, I think in closing, one thing to note about this, part of the reason that this is a fun area is that dark matter hunters are a little bit different than some other physicists. These tend to be people who are very excited about building detectors and how sensitive can we make this detector? So at some level, as a general rule, these are people with very strong technical skills who are really interested at some level in pushing the technology itself and just seeing what they can build. And that's a little different than some people who are sort of that question is the sure Nobel Prize winner and I'm going to throw everything I've got at it. So it's fun because with the extra money that's coming out, these folks are getting to indulge their creative impulses and just sort of see what they can do. And, you know, I think that that's probably a good thing because another thing that's worth considering is that, I mean, if you develop a detector that can detect single low energy phonons, who knows what you could do with that? Maybe you'll never find dark matter with it, but you might be able to find lots and lots of other uses for it. Thank you so much, Adrian. My pleasure, Sarah. Adrian Cho is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Up next, we have researcher Katie Hampson. We talk about how rabies keeps itself in circulation despite vaccines. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. 
change your job, and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. Around the world, more than 50,000 people die from rabies every year, and millions get shots to prevent rabies after a bite. Successful vaccination campaigns have led to very low numbers of cases in Western Europe and North America. But a big question is, could rabies be eliminated globally? Katie Hampson and colleagues wrote in Science This Week about their work to better understand rabies transmission and how to prevent it. Hi, Katie. Hi, hi. You've seen a lot of rabid dogs. Yeah. When you say, oh, it's easily recognizable, is it what people have seen in movies if they're not used to being around rabid animals? So it's not quite the scary movie stuff, fortunately. And I think this is partly because of this variability in dog behavior. And it's a very progressive infection. So once an animal has had infection for two or three days, it sort of rapidly is becoming more paralytic and unable to move very far. And they look, at that point, they look pretty sick. But you could really be surprised in the sense that a dog that seems perfectly tame and normal and sitting down, you might wander over it and think to stroke it, and it could snap at you. In that instance, you wouldn't know it's rabid or anything like that. And that's part of the tragedy we often visited families and they said that they had this nice puppy and it was snapping and the kids were playing with it and didn't seem like a big deal but then it died like a day and a half later and then they sort of tracked back and they're like okay actually we had six kids bitten by that puppy before it died wow and they all have to go and get life-saving post-exposure vaccination but there's just a window of time where you can't be entirely sure Obviously, for us as researchers, we've come to the event afterwards and it's pretty dramatic that a dog has bit multiple people and it has died. But in the moment, it's not so clear. So this is a big topic. Rabies, it kills people, it kills dogs, and it does scary things. And studying it will help prevent these things. But it's also a virus with unique characteristics that can help us understand all kinds of infections, outbreaks, and epidemics. So what makes rabies useful for studying other diseases or infections kind of writ large? Rabies has got some really tractable features. So it's transmitted directly through a bite. And you can see rabid dogs when they've got rabies. And people tend to remember when their dog got bit, certainly when their child got bit. So we really capitalized on that to try and understand transmission by using these features of rabies. Right. So it's a lot different than saying, oh, I wonder if this bat is carrying Ebola. Yeah, absolutely. You would think it's quite simple because it's universally fatal. When an animal gets rabies, then within a few days, you know it's it's going to die or it will have died. And that also makes it an incredibly diagnostic feature, which meant that we could trace rabies 
more easily using those characteristics and rather having to do some kind of diagnostic test in a laboratory where you never can be quite sure how sensitive or specific it is. Okay, let's turn to your study area. This work was done in Tanzania. Why was this the place you decided to study this? Why is it a good location for learning about the way rabies perpetuates itself? It's partly a good place because there's a lot of rabies there. And one of the keys to the success of our work and being able to do contact tracing effectively was basically a key member of the team, Magotto. He was a gentleman who was a livestock field officer for the Serengeti District Livestock Office when I started my PhD with him. He'd already been local to the district, to the region, living there since he was a child. So he had 30 plus years of experience in this community. And it meant that basically everywhere we went to trace rabies, people knew him, he knew all the local dialects, he knew what problems they had with their cows, for example. So it just was a real incredible entry point into the community and this map across the district, which meant we could trace what rabid dogs did. And also community members were really open and appreciated these visits. That's great. Now, this study was collecting data over kind of a long period of time, 2002 to 2016. You're tracking dogs, you're contact tracing. What other kinds of data did you collect over that long period of time? Yeah, it was pretty epic. I admit to that. (laughs) So we realized from the contact tracing that we could get this incredible data on which dogs were infecting which other dogs and how they were moving across the landscape. But a crucial part of disease transmission is knowing the susceptibility of the landscape. How many other individuals are there around to infect? To kind of get at that denominator of the population. And we did this census where we basically visited every single household in the district and found out how many people and how many dogs lived in those households and how many of those dogs were vaccinated. So it was meant to be kind of a a snapshot that could give us a complete representation of the population at risk across this district, which has got about probably closer to 300,000 people living in it now. So it was quite an undertaking. That's a lot of people and a lot of dogs then, right? 300,000 people, how many dogs? Yeah, it's about 50,000 dogs. Yeah, when we started, the dog population was closer to 40,000 dogs, and now it's closer to 80,000 dogs. Wow. Because the population has just really been growing a lot in this particular district, in this part of Tanzania, and people keep keeping dogs, so the dog population has grown too. I think we should be clear that there are not wild packs of roving feral dogs here. This is people's dogs. They could be vaccinated, they might not be vaccinated, but they all mostly have a home. If you've walked through these communities, you may well get the impression that these are unowned dogs. But when you ask people at their household who these dogs belong to, then they always have have an owner. And that's also a really nice thing because they're also potentially accessible to being vaccinated if dog vaccination campaigns are organized. Mm -hmm. So when you gathered this immense pile of data about your contact tracing, you know, where dogs were, which ones got rabies, which ones bit which ones, what kind of patterns emerged over time as you followed all these different dogs? Some pretty striking patterns, actually. So 
rabbit dog behavior is really varied. On average, rabbit dogs don't actually bite that much and don't run that far. They usually remain fairly close to their homestead, a few hundred meters maybe, and they might bite dogs in the household, in the neighboring households. But there is incredible variation. So you also have these super spreaders. The worst cases of rabid dogs, we had a handful of dogs that bit over 50 other dogs during this couple of days that they were infectious. We also had these really extreme examples where dogs had run kilometers going from village to village. Some of these super spreading dogs had bitten tens of kids. Wow on the process. So when we were doing the contact tracing, it was almost like in these particular really extreme examples, the whole community had already done the contact tracing for us. They could take us from household to household and we'd hear the stories about the kids and the families, but then they would tell us whose dogs had been bitten and so on. Is this a feature of rabies, would you say? The variability is a feature or the let's have a super spreader event as a feature, like which is important? So the variability is super important. So one of the features with rabies is that it's fatal. So it doesn't cause immunity. So a big question that we're really trying to understand was why don't rabies outbreaks just explode? And normally what is tending to curtail growth is the buildup of immunity in the population as a whole. But the interesting thing about rabies is that this biting behavior means that you do get dogs being killed off by rabies in the local neighborhood. And you also get dogs biting their neighbors. So they might be incubating the virus when they're bitten by another dog that was bitten by the same dog. So you have this real like clustering of infection and deaths from rabies and dogs incubating. So it's that depletion that occurs extremely locally. But then you'll get this one dog super spreader that'll run to the next village or a few villages away. And that starts a new little focus of infection. You didn't have the super spreaders that run a long distance. They would burn out. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And similarly, uh, this is what we did in the simulations, trying to work out what would happen if you took away this heterogeneity. I mean, that heterogeneity that we tracked was absolutely a critical feature to be able to replicate these dynamics. Now, does this also get at this idea of how important it was, what scale you were looking at, this hyper-local scale versus this meta-population scale? Can you kind of go into that part? This ties into, as epidemiologists, our theoretical understanding of how diseases persist and how they might be pushed to extinction through vaccination and so on. So we developed models of rabies dynamics based on the data that we'd collected. And we basically simulated those models operating at different spatial scales. So we simulated local movement of dogs within a one kilometer grid scale, a four kilometer, 16 kilometer, and and the entire district itself. And I would say that most studies don't have the detailed epidemiological data. So they always model at an administrative scale, which would be like the district itself. We found that if you model at the district scale, you get wildly inaccurate estimates of rabies spread. But if you take the scale down to the one kilometer scale, then actually you start to 
capture the types of dynamics that we actually observed. We did push it and did go a spatial scale smaller, so at 500, 250 by 250 meters, but it was actually the one kilometer scale that really had the best results. Can you take that approach to modeling a disease and then use it to figure out the best strategies for preventing outbreaks? Being able to model at this scale means that we can make the kind of predictions that we think are realistic. And I think the behavior of rabbit dogs is fairly transferable to broadly rural populations in similar parts of East Africa, if not over other settings. Another related aspect was that in tracing these dynamics, we could also trace what we think of as introductions to the district. So an introduction just means a dog might be wandering over from one village into the next across an invisible village boundary. But those introductions, we were able to quantify them. And if we were able to take out those introductions, which of course we can do in a in a modeling world, then the dog vaccination really rapidly had the desired impacts and would eliminate infection. But once you've got the introductions going on continuously, it means that as you vaccinate, you do suppress infection, but it keeps coming back in from outside. So we actually have to really think about coordinating dog vaccination and delivering dog vaccination over over connected populations. Our findings suggested that if you do that coordination, you would have much stronger impacts. But if you just do a small vaccination in a town or a district, but don't have any coordinated efforts outside, then you'll have impacts, but they'll be quite short-lived. Very interesting. Can we take a little side trip here into the role of dogs in this? Yes, sure. Are dogs the primary host for rabies or are they where rabies is most successful or is it the one that we people care about? So in this part of East Africa, it really does seem as if domestic dogs are the key population. So if you're able to vaccinate dogs and basically take them out of the equation, you'll solve the problem in people getting exposed, in wildlife getting exposed, and cattle dying of rabies. So you'll kind of solve multiple problems all in one go. It was initially a bit of a surprise because Serengeti District borders Serengeti National Park, where there's lots of very good wildlife hosts like jackals and hyenas and mongoose and lions and so on. Getting back to the results, this new understanding of patterns of rabies transmission, what other diseases might deserve a second look using this scale, thinking about it in a different scale to try to better understand its uh, transmission dynamics? The most obvious one to me, and the one that I think reminds me quite a lot of rabies, is Ebola. There is also close contact transmission and there is potentially some immunity involved. But again, I think whilst the epidemic in West Africa was absolutely horrific, it didn't get as bad as people thought. My suspicion is there was depletion going on at quite a smaller scale in a similar way to rabies. And it was something to do with the spatial dynamics that I think played a role and that we haven't fully understood. But to be honest, any infection that is circulating in a spatially structured population, so typically more in wild and domestic animal populations where there isn't quite so much mixing as 
human populations, I think these processes are likely to be operating. I think this also gives us a little bit more insight into endemically circulating pathogens because most of our attention is typically on the dynamics as the disease is emerging. And actually, maybe as a misperception, people might think, well, once we're reaching endemicity, it can't be so bad. Yeah, but rabies would disagree with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But also that being able to track transmission in this way will help us to be able to better describe endemic dynamics, which is generally this area that is not as well understood. I can't help wanting to ask, is rabies doing this on purpose? Is it making dogs travel long distances? <laughs> making dogs fight lots of dogs? Like, I don't even know how to ask that question. I keep thinking about that infection that happens in insects that makes them climb to the top of trees. Oh, yeah, the ants that climb to the top. Yeah. So <laughs> it's a well-honed virus. My personal opinion is that it is doing this effectively on purpose. Back in the day, people did do cross-infection experiments and the viruses that were in were basically inoculated into dogs were much more transmissible to other dogs rather than raccoons or mice or bats or something. We know the virus is adapted to its host to spread better in its particular host and it relates to the body size of the animal and the viral dose and so on. But it is kind of a fascinating virus and I'm sure that the reason it's like this is because it's effective to do so. All right. Thank you so much, Katie. Thanks a lot. It was really great to speak with you. Katie Hampson is a professor in the Institute of Biodiversity, Animal Health and Comparative Medicine at the University of Glasgow. You can find a link to the paper we discussed and a related commentary piece at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an introduction to our new series on books exploring the science of food and agriculture. This month, host Angela Saini talks with scholar Lenore Newman about the books we'll be covering and how they were selected. Hello, I'm Angela Saini, science journalist, author and host of this special series of books podcasts. Last year in this series, we looked at race and identity. This year, we're exploring food and agriculture. In a series of six interviews, which will be released monthly over the course of this year, I'll be speaking to authors of recent thought-provoking books on topics as wide-ranging as indigenous land management and foods that are going extinct. This list was carefully chosen by Lenore Newman, director of the Food and Agriculture Institute at the University of the Fraser Valley in Canada. Lenore researches agricultural land use policy technologies and has herself published articles and book chapters in both the academic and popular press. Her first book, Speaking in Cod Tongues, was published in 2017 and won a Saskatchewan Book Award. And her second book, Lost Feast, was published in 2019. Lenore joins me today to talk about her book choices for this series. So first of all, Lenore, there's, of course, this enormous literature spanning food and agriculture. So how did you start narrowing this all down? There has been an explosion of food and agriculture books in the last couple of decades, for sure. Really, what I was looking for in this selection was to broaden that conversation because we are seeing a lot 
of diversity in current voices in this literature, but also across a broader range of agriculture and food production itself. So it was really important, for example, that we have something coming from fish and seafood and ocean products. And so we get The Blue Revolution, for example. That's The Blue Revolution, the book by Nicholas P. Sullivan, looking at hunting, harvesting and farming seafood in the information age. It is a very diverse list. I mean, when you first hear the words food and agriculture, it sounds quite dry. But actually, there's some really fascinating books on this list, some tending towards the more academic but others which are very much meant for everyday readers. For example, Eating to Extinction by Dan Saladino, which just came out recently and looks at that phenomenon of foods that used to be available and just aren't available anymore, you know, that are disappearing from cultures. It's so true. And uh, Dan's book was one that really did grab me. One of the examples that really caught me was this wild honey harvesting, which he describes in great detail. I'd heard stories of the honeycatcher birds that lead people to honey trees in sub-Saharan Africa. And I really thought that was kind of lost to the mists of time. But of course, it's still going on and is deeply endangered. And just the way he captures these food systems is quite beautiful. And the range of wild foods he covers and You know, in terms of brute force, calories, dollars, wild uh, harvest is a very small part of the food system now, but it's still culturally extremely important. And that was an amazing journey that he takes the reader on. One of the beautiful things about food and agriculture is this really is a universal theme, and that is certainly represented in this list. We've managed to get a very diverse list, so not just looking within the West and food issues within the West, but also, for example, indigenous agriculture and farming, and also farming in the developing world, or what we used to call the developing world. It's very true. And I also really wanted to capture the fact that this isn't a settled debate, that there are numerous agricultural systems and worldviews vying for uh, dominance of a sort in the food system. And they kind of play together, but also there are points of contention. A good example there is we have Food for All in Africa, which really talks about how you can take food sovereignty and local production and mix it with advanced technologies, especially genomics, which is a bit of a departure from the usual counterpoint of those two elements. But then on the other side, in Fresh Banana Leaves by Jessica Hernandez, we really see a book there that frames indigenous knowledge more in opposition to dominant big agricultural science. And I like how those books both contrast each other, but also do work together to talk about how to broaden the discussion of agriculture on a global sense. Why do you think this topic right now is particularly important? There's probably not in the last hundred years been a point at which the food system is so critical to the discourse. And there's a couple of reasons. Number one is climate change. And the fact that climate change is rapidly accelerating into a crisis that threatens the global food system, but is also caused by the global food system. 
Number one, we're seeing food supplies challenged by this and other issues. But also we know that agriculture is one of the few places where we actually can go from a carbon intensive industry to a carbon sequestering industry. So there's both great challenge and great opportunity. Now, as we're recording this, we're also seeing unprecedented challenge to the food system on all sides. We have the climate change issue, of course, ramping up, but we also have the ongoing damage from the pandemic that challenged our food supply lines for sure. And now a war between two of the big grain producing countries, between fertilizer producing countries that is having knock-on effects throughout the whole system. So if we look at the war in Ukraine, it's impacting grain supply for sure. That's causing challenges in the Middle East, in Northern Africa. The lack of fertilizer is causing challenges in South America. And globally, combined with the other problems we were already facing, we're seeing rapid inflation in food prices, probably for the first time since the Second World War at this level, to the point where even here in Canada, the U.S., in Europe, we're noticing sticker shock. Absolutely. I mean, so many of us take up, lucky enough to be able to take food supply for granted. And it's for those in the West, particularly, I feel like this moment, we're starting to realize just how fragile it really is. It is true. One of the books that was in a way most challenging for me, because it's not exactly my area of expertise, was The Future of Nutrition by uh, Colin Campbell. And what I found amazing about that book is he really picks apart the animal industrial system, which we know is a problem in terms of climate change, in terms of animal ethics. And then what we really see there is he gets at politics and the policy behind it. And this, what he calls political inertia, protecting animal protein from scrutiny. And he draws a lot of comparisons with other industries where Health has been sidelined by politics, such as uh, tobacco and alcohol and chemical industry, etc. And that was a really interesting take, realizing that, you know, if we look at this $2 trillion industry of animal protein, there's a lot of politics organized against being critical of that industry. And I found that one really interesting. There are so many more books that we could have included. And I remember when we had this discussion about what to put in, it was very painful narrowing it down. So very briefly, what tips do you have for those listeners who might want to explore even further than this list? Oh, it's so true. So there is some really interesting literature coming out around cuisines that have been uh, less studied, have had less support. And I think... There's some wonderful reading there, such as if we look at the um, indigenous cuisine of Australia, we have books like Dark Emu looking at how those systems work. There's some fascinating work coming out about uh, Hawaiian Creole cuisine and the uh, indigenous cuisines of Hawaii. We're seeing some really interesting work coming out about traditional cuisines in China, in Japan really expands the spectrum. And there is some really um, intelligent writing coming out as well about the future of food that isn't quite so black and white, either 
small scale versus large scale agriculture versus local systems really looks at how do we mix these. So I think for the food reader, it is it is a golden age. Absolutely. I agree with you. Well, thank you so much, Lenore Newman. I'm Angela Saini, and I hope you listeners at home will tune in for the interviews with the authors of these books over the next six months and perhaps even read along with us. Thank you so much. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi, with production help from Podigy and Megan Cantwell. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.